0: Good morning, friends. Today's message, as we continue through the book of Philippians, is titled, Pray for Anyone About Anything. Let me ask, how would you rate your own prayer life? If you had to give yourself a grade, would it be an A, B, C, D, or F? I mean, or as someone suggested, how about the word incomplete? Now, before you decide on an answer, let's try the question another way. Is your prayer life A, excellent, B, above average, C, average, D, below average, or E, I need big help? Probably many of us would choose E simply because we feel like our prayer life truly does need a little bit of help. Maybe on this cold morning, it's kind of like needing a jump start. Well, in this message, I hope to give you some very practical advice that could energize your prayer life. And as we begin moving in that direction, here are three opening observations. Observation number one, prayer is both the easiest and hardest discipline of the Christian life. It is the easiest in that the youngest child and the newest Christian can learn to pray. Even the slightest motion of the soul toward God is a form of prayer. If a person says, Lord, have mercy, they are praying. But prayer is also the hardest discipline because it is the most difficult to maintain over a long period of time. In a sense, it's easy to enroll in the School of Prayer, but hard to get a graduate degree. Here's observation number two. Almost everyone prays, believer and non-believer, and almost everyone feels they could improve. See, even in our best moments, we must admit that we have barely touched the hem of the Master's garment in the arena of prayer. In observation three, prayer presents us with problems both theological and practical. On one level, we are faced with difficult questions regarding the sovereignty of God and human free will. While those questions are important, I do not propose to address them in this message. I'd rather tackle the challenge of prayer on a purely practical level. When we pray, what should we pray for? See, I'm much more interested in what, the what and the how of prayer because this is where most of us live every day. Often we simply don't know what to say when we pray. I'm thinking especially of those moments when we begin to pray for others beyond our most intimate circle. What do you do when you're faced with a prayer list of friends and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers and missionaries and others whom you hardly know at all? Our usual response is to pray something like this, uh, Lord, uh, uh, bless Sally. Then we go to the next name, and Lord, uh, um, and please bless Bill. And Then we go to the next name, Lord, uh, um, I ask you to really bless our missionaries in Ghana. As one person told me one time, if you took the word bless out of our prayer vocabularies, most of us would never pray again. And while I believe it's perfectly appropriate to ask God to bless people, I think we can move far beyond that and dramatically increase the effectiveness in our prayers. Now we can use Paul's prayer for the Philippians in chapter 1 verses 9 to 11 as a blueprint for powerful praying. This is a prayer that fits virtually every situation we may face. If we understand the meaning of Paul's words, we can truly pray for anyone about anything. So let's begin with three requests that God will always honor. And Paul begins here with three of them for the Philippian believers, and as we pray for others, we should feel perfectly free to include these requests as our own. And request, request number one would be for abounding love. Verse 9a says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Imagine an empty cup slowly being filled with water. When the water reaches the brim, it begins to overflow down the sides of the cup. That's the picture Paul has in mind, love filling the hearts of the Philippians until it overflows. In fact it seems that all of paul's prayers began with a petition of love that's because according to first corinthians thirteen thirteen, love is the supreme among the christian virtues it alone will last forever so no matter how much love we have our love can always increase paul prays that their love would increase in depth and in extent he's praying that they would love more people and would love them in a greater way And since the text is indefinite, we should ask if Paul is thinking about A, love for God, B, love for fellow Christians, or C, love for non-Christians. And the answer, of course, is yes. The text is indefinite because our love for God is always tied to our love for other people. 1 John 4.20 says, If a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. See, it's easy to understand why Paul's prayer begins with love. Since we live in a fallen world, we often find ourselves surrounded with irritable, cantankerous people. I mean, even Christians, sometimes I call them heavenly sandpaper. I mean, love is the glue that holds humans together. It enables us to overlook the faults of others while acknowledging that we ourselves are far from perfect. Request number two is growing in knowledge. Verse 9b, second part, in knowledge and in depth of insight. Now, Paul's prayer continues with the request that the Philippians might grow in their knowledge of God. And the word for knowledge means knowledge based on a deep, personal, and intimate relationship. In context, Paul is asking that their love express itself in an intimate knowledge of who God is. Now, sometimes we say love is blind, but God says, no, love needs clear vision. Our love needs the guidance of knowledge, or else we'll end up loving things we ought not to love and entering into relationships that are not good for us. While love is supreme, it is never enough. Love must be guided by true knowledge, and this is the burden of Paul's prayer. And where do we find this kind of knowledge? Well, we get it from the Word of God with the aid of the Holy Spirit. And as we study the Bible, the Spirit takes the Word and reveals to us the things of God. Read, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-16. to 16. Bury yourself in the Bible with an open heart, and very soon your whole life will begin to change. What Paul wants is that the Philippians learn to think Christianly, if there's such a word, in every situation. That leads us directly to the third request, and that's increasing discernment. Verse 10 continues, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Eugene Peterson, in his translation called The Message, offers this paraphrase. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. The New English Bible speaks of the gift of true discrimination. The New Living Translation offers this translation. I want you to understand what really matters. Now, all those versions ultimately come out of the same, out of the same place. Paul says that the Philippians would have such love and knowledge that they would continually make wise choices in life. He's praying that they wouldn't be satisfied with the status quo or with spiritual mediocrity, but would push on to true spiritual excellence. Now, in a sense, he's asking God for the gift of spiritual discrimination. In our day, discrimination has a mostly negative tone, but in the spiritual realm, we desperately need to discriminate between good and bad, good and better, better and best. I define this kind of discrimination as the ability to make wise choices under pressure. And there are really two parts to making wise choices. First, you must know what is right. This is crucial because we live in a world where many people evidently have lost all sense of right and wrong. Everything appears to them as shades of gray. And second, you must have the courage to choose what you know to be right. Discover what you believe to be true and then learn to stand up for those beliefs no matter what. If you do what you know is right, it doesn't matter what people think. True discernment gives you vision to see what is right. In the courage to choose to do it. Well, next up, three answers we should always seek. Paul's answers are the results that flow from the three requests just mentioned the request for love, knowledge, and discernment. Answer number one is a blameless life, in verse 10, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, we want to take note of a couple of words here. First of all, the word pure comes from two other words that mean judgment. And sunlight. In the first century shops, they were often dimly lit, which meant that prospective customers would have trouble viewing what they wanted to buy. When they took the pottery or the fabric into the sunlight, they could see it as it really was. The sunlight revealed the truth. To be pure means to live in such a way that the truth about who we are is clear. It means that people don't have to wonder about what you're doing in the darkness because you have nothing to hide. And the word blameless uh, comes from the Greek word family skandalon, from which we get that English word scandal. It originally referred to the bait in a trap that would catch unsuspecting animals. It came to mean a lifestyle that caused others to fall into sin. A blameless person is free from moral scandal. It means you don't stumble into sin and you don't cause others to stumble by your behavior. Answer number two. A fruitful life, verse 11 says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The Bible often uses the metaphor of a fruit tree to describe both the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked. Regarding false prophets, Jesus declared that by their fruit you shall know them. That's in Matthew 7, verse 20. As you know, you tell what a tree is not by the bark it wears, but the fruit of visible Christian character. A fruitful life is one that is distinctly Christian in every aspect. It reminds me of the question, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The fruitful life can always answer yes. And note that this fruit comes through Jesus Christ. As we are rooted deeply in him and as we draw our strength from him, his power flows through us and produces the fruit of righteousness in us. He is the root and his power produces the fruit. Answer number three, a theodoxic life, verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. Now, don't go running and looking up that uh, word theodoxic in your dictionary because I just made it up. Theo means God and doxic means glory, as in the doxology. A theodoxic life is one that brings glory or praise to God. Such a person enhances God's reputation in this world. When, you see, when people see you, do they naturally think about God? Does your life serve as a good advertisement for the Lord? As a child, I was often reminded that I was Klaus and Hulda Aaron's grandson. Because they were the ones raising me, I had an obligation not to ruin their name by the way I lived and to bring glory if I could. The same principles hold true in the spiritual realm. We who bear God's name must live so that others can see Jesus in us. Now, before we finish, let's step back and consider how great this prayer is. In some ways, it covers the whole range of what God wants to do in us and through us. It starts with abounding love that manifests itself in knowledge and discernment, resulting in the ability to make wise choices under pressure and the visible fruit of a righteous life that comes from a living relationship with Jesus so that God alone gets the glory. What a fantastic prayer. And here's the application. Pray this prayer for yourself and pray this prayer for others. So friends, who are you praying for today? Remember, prayer is not a ritual but a matter of the heart. To pray for someone else is an act of hidden kindness that only God sees. And because God alone sees your heart, he'll hear your prayer and reward you in secret. We can touch people through prayer that we couldn't touch any other way. Prayer is the very sword of the saints. God gave you a secret weapon so that by your prayer you can change the world. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.